The creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science. Neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method. And in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation. Welcome to our podcast. Well, good morning, afternoon, or evening from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm Marv Schaefer, president of the Missouri Association for Creation, and I'm here with Zachary Klein, who is a board member and speaker for MAC, and today he'll be interviewing pastor and theologian Stephen Lloyd, who works for Biblical Creation Trust in the UK. Zach, take it away. Thank you, Marv. I'm here in the studio today with Dr. Stephen Lloyd of Biblical Creation Trust. Stephen, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. So I had the chance to meet Stephen Lloyd for the first time, actually, at the International Conference on Creationism. So the past couple episodes, hopefully our our listeners are familiar. We had a two-part conversation with uh, Mr. Garner about some of the research that he presented at the ICC. And Stephen, you were at the ICC as well, not as a presenter, but in attendance at the conference. What were some of your thoughts of the, of the uh, event? Yeah, it was the first time I've been to this conference. I've followed it a lot over the years. I've had the papers and stuff, but to actually be there in person was great. I got to see some of the uh, creationist big names that I'd not actually met in person before. And I think one of the things that struck me, I think, was just the, the number of young people there and the sort of the new generation of researchers. And I thought that was really encouraging. And to see the sort of the progress, really, that's been made on the creation model over the years. Again, I, you know, I've followed this for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And you just see some of the sort of fruit of work over a long time and a lot of hard work. Absolutely. And uh, your background, so you have both a science background as well as a background in theology and as a pastor over in the UK. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. I studied science at Cambridge University, sort of physical sciences. My research speciality was electron microscopy and was pursuing that, you know, in a professional capacity for a good number of years. Yeah. Awesome. And then, and then finished my time in Cambridge with a uh, sort of theology diploma. Yeah. Okay. And you're now a pastor as well, I understand? That's right. Yeah. I've been a pastor in a town called Gravesend in, in Kent, which is just east of London. And I've been there for coming up to 15 years now. Yeah. That's awesome. So several years ago, you wrote a article in a, a theological journal, I believe, uh, or website on the topic of what you called it chronological creationism. Yeah, it was a journal for sort of an organization that brings together evangelicals across denominations across Britain, a journal called Foundations that belongs to the, the organization Affinity. Yeah. Mm, okay. So American here, not as familiar with all the all the things you guys got going on over across the pond, but that sounds really interesting. And I know that the subject matter uh, is something that most creationists, at least we think that we're familiar with this. It's the problem of death before Adam, or more specifically death before Adam's sin. And of course, most creationists, we would argue that you can't have that, that God called creation very good, and therefore there should be no death before sin, and that has implications for the fossil record. We would say the fossil record hmm. can't be a record of, of life forms that existed before Adam and so forth. But you wrote a lot about this topic, and I think you carried it into some areas of biblical theology uh, beyond what a lot of creationists even think of. And so I wonder if you might share a little bit about some of your thinking and some of the work that you've done and that you've written on this topic of which came first, Adam or death? 
Yeah, I mean, you say that it's an argument we use a lot, but in some ways, I actually think creationists, or at least are not heard in that way. What people think creationists are about is how long are the days? Mm-hmm. And they think that is what the topic is about. And in fact, this the, the article I wrote was responding to another person's paper that was basically characterizing the origins debate in that way, because that is how it ha- comes across to many people. And, and to, be, to be frank, it's actually how a lot of creationists tend to focus their argument. Even the phrase, six-day creationist, yeah. right? We put the emphasis on what does yom mean? How yeah. long were the days? And the argument begins to sound very technical. Right. Yeah. And people start well, to tune out a little bit. And also a bit irrelevant. You mm-hmm. know, okay, yeah, I mean everything in the scripture is important, but is it really that important how long these days are? It's not immediately obvious why this really matters. So um I think the uh what I was trying to do in this article was really to establish almost a methodology for how to approach the creation debate. That we're not just arbitrarily pointing out we each have our different proof texts, you know, one people will quote one thing, someone else quotes something else. What I was trying to do was say, well, let's approach this in a sort of reasoned methodological way. How can we make the creationist case? So where I actually began, uh, it might seem like an odd place for how you discuss the creation debate, was actually what Paul argues in, in Galatians 3 and in Romans 4 about this precedence of grace over law. And he says, you know, the reason grace has that precedence is because Abraham came first. It's a chronological mm. argument. And he even actually gives some numbers. You know, it's not just uh, Abraham was before Moses, even says how long before Moses he was. And to me, that was just establishing a sort of, okay, that's how Paul's reasoning. He's saying Christian theology works on history, on Mm -hmm. order of events. Let's apply that same methodology to the creation debate. That's interesting. And something else I think a strength really of this way of arguing and thinking about the creation debate and the whole issue Mm -hmm. of young earth and old earth and so forth, is that if the debate is on issues of how long were the days, for hmm. example, or other kind of technicalities of the hmm. creation account, a lot of folks think they can find ways around those, right? They think they can find another yeah. way to understand the meaning of yom. They think they can find maybe some sort of a pattern or a framework in the creation account that gives them latitude hmm. to stretch those days out or not take them literally. But what all those methods, they all fall short of abiding by the Bible's chronology, its bigger picture story, even if they Hmm. might have an answer that satisfies at least some people Hmm. on the Creation Week issue, there's a deeper issue at play that these other old earth type creationist perspectives really can't account for. And I think they would actually acknowledge that their exegesis sometimes or understanding of what day means is not the most natural Mm-hmm. way of understanding the text. You know, the Young Earth interpretation is the most natural reading, but, you know, we can't adopt it for other reasons. But in a sense, they don't really care that it's not the best exegesis because it doesn't really matter and it solves mm. a, a big, as I would say, a big apologetic problem. So I guess what I'm trying to do is turn the question around and almost start from what is mainstream in Christian theology. So we're starting from the cross, the resurrection, and we're saying, what are the implications of that? for how we understand origin. So no one can can argue that we're not talking about something that matters then. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying that just what Christians have believed down the ages, you know, before Darwin, that those doctrines have implications for how we can understand origins. Mm. So you brought up the term relative chronology. And I know in your article, you contrast that with absolute chronology. Yeah. The actual dates when things mm. happen versus mm. this had to happen before 
the next yeah. thing in order for the story to make sense. So how do you see that playing out in this issue of Adam, death, and how this ties in ultimately to the cross? Okay, so the relative chronology is simply the order of events. So, you know, Abraham is before Moses. The, the argument doesn't matter whether Abraham was 20 years before Moses or 2,000 mm -hmm. years or whatever. So that has the sort of theological priority. But Paul does actually give numbers. And equally, I believe the Bible does give numbers. It does give us the information we need to construct a chronology. So when it comes to the issue of death, well, really starting from the cross, you know, why did Jesus have to die? If Jesus's death is about payment for sin, then that's the answer to a problem. Mm. And if you like, this is where the chronology thing comes from. It's because the Bible is a story. And in a story, there's a coherence to the story. You have, you know, causes before effects. You mm -hmm. have problems before the solution. And if the cross is the solution, it's telling us that the problem must be physical death. That mm. that is something that it was not in there in the beginning as God made creation, but it's something that has come in through Adam's sin. So it's simply starting with the cross. We're saying that that must be uh, what came in through Adam's sin. That's interesting. So if we were to reverse that, hmm. so let's say that death has been around for a long time hmm. before Adam, then what does Christ's death actually accomplish? He's won a victory over something that isn't he ultimately responsible for? It certainly wasn't Adam's it, fault if it was there before him. Indeed. I mean, it creates a contradiction with the resurrection because the resurrection is a victory over death. And yet, if Jesus made the world with death in place at the beginning, he's coming and having a victory over the thing that he made at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, that just doesn't make any sense. So yeah, that's another great example of where, you know, core doctrine, the resurrection is telling us something about when death appeared in the world. And it also has implications for how we understand that the new creation as well. You know, mm. everyone believes the new creation is going to be death free. I always find it amusing the way, um, you know, Revelation 21.4, where it talks about no more death. Mm. Everyone takes that literally, even though it's in well, depending on how quite how you understand the book of Revelation, there's there's <laughs> I think everyone would agree there's a lot of symbolism sure. at some level. Um, and yet there's no sort of no sort of, well, we've got to be a bit uncertain here about our hermeneutics, you know, we can't mm. be too dogmatic. Everyone just takes it as yes, of course there won't be any physical death in the new creation. And yet the problem is if death has always been there, it means that what Jesus did on the cross in dying had nothing to do with the problem of sin, mm. which means that the sin-free new creation has nothing to do with salvation. It's simply God remaking creation in a different way. You know, he did it the first time round that had death in, second time round, he'll sort of do a better job. And uh, that just makes a nonsense of the Bible story. So, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, we don't make enough of the new creation. Well, actually, if you take this view that death has always been there, that evolution is true, it actually totally undercuts the idea of new creation as part of Christian salvation. Wow. That's really fascinating when you think about that, because as you said earlier, these are things that every Christian cares about. Hmm. The cross, the resurrection, yeah. the new creation. This might be going a little bit out of the ground that you're a booklet and this article covers, but I know you've talked about it recently. But uh, when we think about the the flood hmm. and how that, at least in Peter's reasoning, seems to correspond with this time of a global judgment yeah. still yet to come, and that there's a correspondence there as well, that as sin corrupts the creation hmm. and there is consequences for that, but there's also a redemptive factor as well. That people are saved, animals are saved through the flood, and that there is a new world that comes out on the other side. And we see the same thing happening again when we look at the new creation on the other side of hmm. another time of judgment. It seems like the Bible's big picture story is very tightly connected 
that these details actually do matter. And that when you start to minimize some as well, this might be just sort of a hyperbole Hmm. or this might be just a story that's meant to teach us something about the character of God, how he likes things, his preferred arrangement of things Hmm. in sort of a metaphorical sense. You start to unwind, it seems, that big story, the the meta narrative of scripture, if you will. And I think Peter, you know, in 2 Peter 3, he is placing the flood within the storyline of the Bible. And it's very interesting the way he links the creation, the flood, and the new creation, such that it's quite hard to see how the flood can be on a different scale to the creation and new creation. You know, it seems to be if you're going to argue the flood is local, you have to start arguing, well, the account of creation is local, (laughs) which of course then begs the question, who made the rest of it? And some people have actually gone down that line. It's actually quite an old sure. idea. Someone in the in the Victorian era proposed uh, a local creation. A promised land or something like that. I, I've it's, heard of that. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Uh, you know, which is a consistent position, but I don't think it's really one uh, we would want to go down. But I mean, I do make a sort of chronological argument in the book as well about the flood. There's sort of three aspects. There's the death argument, there's uh, Adam humanity, and there's also about the flood. Mm. And there's the sort of very, you know, what sounds like an obvious point that uh, Abraham comes after Noah. You think, mm-hmm. well, okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, I think it's very striking the way the promise to Abraham, where he is told that uh, through his offspring, all nations will be blessed. And you think, well, who are the all nations? Well, in the context of Genesis, it is very tightly tied to Noah's descendants. It's like the post-flood promises of you know God preserving the world are made to Noah, his sons, the descendants of Noah, and also the animals that come off the ark, Hmm. which creates a massive problem if you believe in a local flood, because there would be other people and animals who survive the flood who are then not included in those promises. And it seems to me not included actually in that promise to Abraham, you know, so when Jesus says, go into all nations and, you know, make Hmm. disciples, well, who are the nations? If you take a local flood view, it seems to me that uh, you have to start arguing there's some peoples that are not included, peoples that are not descended from Noah's family. Wow. Wow. So you get yourself into some major hot water quickly. Yeah. I mean, so people sort of think the flood story is this sort of thing. It doesn't really matter that much. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a judgment story. Okay. But, But that gets taught in other places too. But I think there's actual real gospel implications for the scale of the flood. It's an issue that actually really matters. Wow. This is great. And, and this is all, we're just talking really biblical theology at this point. Uh, these yeah. are things that no one can argue are, are minor details yeah. to Christian faith, to mm. what we teach in our churches and so forth. These are things that every Christian mm. cares about. And uh, one of the strengths, I think, when I was reading your your article is that this really does show that we're not talking about a simple matter of a conflict between science and religion. Something we talk about quite a bit, even on this podcast, is the fact that Genesis purports to be history. Hmm. And as you said er earlier, that the Christian faith depends on historical Hmm. truths, that things actually happened in a certain way in Hmm. the past that explains where we are today and where we're going. And I think what I'm taking away from what you're saying here is that history, it really sets the stage for everything that we see in Scripture, including the cross, including the resurrection. And it's what we see even going back to the thing where I started with, with Abraham and Moses, you know, mm-hmm. Paul's argument is resting on these people having existed, the Bible describing real events. Right. And that is the pattern you see all through scripture. Every Christian believes the resurrection, it matters that that actually happened. It wasn't just some sort of uh, mythological thing. 
But that same principle that our theology rests on history applies all the way through Christianity. And that's what I think gives it almost sort of purchase on reality. So many people dismiss Christianity today because they think it's just this personal view. It's something internal to us. It's unconnected from the real world. And of course, if that's what you think, you can't be disproved, mm -hmm. but you're also irrelevant. Whereas to me, the benefit of a creation understanding is that it's constantly bringing stuff back to reality, to something testable and something at some level that could be disproved, you know, so right. you're making yourself vulnerable. And one of the points I make in the book, because I also sort of talk about some of the apologetic implications. And one of the problems, I think, with theistic evolution is that it spiritualizes everything. You know, the death that comes from sin, that's just spiritual. Our identity as the image of God is really just a spiritual quality. Mm -hmm. It's nothing about our physical identity, which has other implications, mm -hmm. I think, for the whole transgender debate, but that's another topic. And, you know, the consequences of sin are spiritual. There's no physical consequence on the world in that understanding. And that means that our sort of theology is in this sort of spiritual bubble. And uh, as one, I think Mike Reeves put it once, you know, it means our theology is sort of plucked out of thin air. <laughs> and, and in a sense, well, why should anyone else believe that? It's not resting on wow. anything real. Wow. Yeah, I was thinking as you were saying that of all the times when in the Old Testament, when God will identify himself as I am to hmm. the nation of Israel, I am the hmm. God who brought you out of Egypt. Yeah. And how there's a direct connection with history to understanding who God is and who we are. And that actually matters. If God was making some hmm. appeal to a myth or hmm. a, a novel, if he was saying, you know, I'm the God that brought you out of Mordor, it would have meant the same thing, it would have carried any yeah. weight because you really didn't do that. Yeah. God's character is defined not in an abstract way in scripture i mean you do have attributes listed sure but fundamentally it's about what god has done you know mm. it's like what does the very first verse of the bible tell us it tells us that god created it's mm -hmm. not even that i'm this sort of being that's into creation in some abstract way it's this is what god is i created i got people out of egypt you know it's constantly defined by history by actions by reality and that's, of course, what made, uh, you know, the Canaanites scared because yep. they knew this, right. is, this is what this God has done. We may not like him. We may uh, not whatever, but he did this stuff. And boy, are we scared. Yeah. And I, I love how you point out, too, that that shows how you might say earth minded God actually is, hmm. that he actually is involved in creation, yeah. that he does actually come down and make contact, that he does do things in the real world. It's not just a, a spiritual it it's, it's the plain. glory of Christianity that it brings the physical and the spiritual together because so many religions are actually about almost escaping the physical world. Mm -hmm. Whereas the glory of Christianity is we believe a God who has made flesh. Amen. And that's just uh, such an incredible thing that he's this God of not just heaven above, but of earth below. And uh, he's taken humanity even into himself. And it's this physical reality, this historical reality of what he's doing in the world. Amen. And I think then when we look at the creation and evolution debate, that properly understanding this, it kind of gives us a bit of backbone, hmm. right? That when we do face a world that is telling us that we got here through a completely different means, hmm. that it was a process of evolution, that it was a process of hmm. random chance and so forth, that there was a big bang, that if God exists, maybe he does, but he's not really relevant hmm. to the way things are. And I think that as Christians, you know, with this in mind, this should give us, I hope, uh, the confidence to say no, that actually our history does matter. And th this uh, is not something that we're just going to go away quietly or try to synthesize with a secular account of origins that I think, as you show in, in the article quite capably, you really can't reconcile the secular 
origin story of humanity with what the Bible lays out. Even the various old earth creationist perspectives hmm. that are out there, they really don't solve this particular inconsistency. They all have the same chronological problems that create, frankly, a pretty bizarre theology if you follow mm -hmm. those through consistently. And, and I guess I was trying to show that you know, we're not embarrassed about creationism. This is actually a really attractive Absolutely. Um, position to take. You know, the theology is attractive. It holds the Bible together. It, it gives it a consistent story. But I was trying to argue there's an apologetic attractiveness mm. here that, you know, so a lot of people think creationism, this is apologetic liability. And, and yes, there, there's scientific issues we have to address, and I don't want to minimize those, but it actually makes it a whole load easier to answer a lot of the actually bigger questions that people are asking today. I mean, just the whole issue of suffering becomes incredibly difficult to address without a creationist framework. If you're trying to argue that God made the world with all this suffering in place, wow. you're very open to the sort of atheist objections of, well, why would I want to believe in a God mm -hmm. like that? So I, I talk a bit about those apologetic implications. And also there's a little section as well at the end on the science, the, how we handle the science and almost a scientific methodology hmm. of, of just sort of introducing this idea of creation model building and how that is actually an attractive and fruitful approach to addressing the scientific problems. Because again, that's just something totally new to a lot of people. You know, right. they, they're just not aware of that sort of creationist way of thinking. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. This is a fascinating conversation. I know that the article is available online. We'll put the link in the show notes, the article hmm. from the Foundation's Journal. Yep. And then you, you uh, at Biblical Creation Trust, you've published this article as well in, in a book form? Yeah, we sort of reprinted it with a bit of different formatting uh, and gave it its different title because we thought maybe chronological creationism was not the perhaps the greatest page turner. I mean, it, it, there was a reason for that title in the original article. So, so that's why we gave it this title, sure. Adam or Death, uh, which came first. And so, yeah, we've made a little booklet. Well, we're going to try and make it available in, in yes. the US. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that being made available. And certainly when it does, folks can learn about it at the MAC website at mocreation.org. Well, thank you, Stephen. This is fascinating. Can you share a little bit more about Biblical Creation Trust and where folks can learn about your ministry and some of the things that you're involved in? You can go to our website, biblicalcreationtrust.org, and uh, there's links to then other the sort of YouTube channel and, and other things and Paul's podcast that's become a lot more well known. But I think our, our sort of overall aim as a, an organization is to make creationism sort of mainstream in the church, that um, it's not this sort of weird issue for sort of people that are just into fanatics or strange fanatics on this sort of topic. But this is just the outworking of normal Christianity, like I've tried to explain in the book. And, and even if Darwin had never existed, we would be doing this stuff. We'd mm. be doing this research. You know, we don't need an enemy, if you like, to motivate us. We mm. just want to understand God's creation according to God's word. So I suppose to make creationism mainstream in that way, we want to take the sort of research stuff that's been presented at things like ICC and be a sort of interface that brings that to the church in an accessible form. And we really want to serve the church. We don't mm. want to be an organization that just sort of gets bigger and bigger for its own sake. It's about serving the church. The church is Jesus' agent Absolutely. in the world and of you know his mission in the world. And but churches need to be equipped on this topic. And you know, we believe this biblical creation foundation can be that way that we can be equipped to meet the apologetic challenges today. That's awesome. Much the same with the vision of us over here at Missouri Association for Creation. That's very much what we're trying to do in our geographic region here in the U.S., in the St. Louis area, trying to equip churches, to equip pastors, to equip uh, teachers, and just to make people aware that there are answers, that there are reasons for holding this position of biblical creation. 
And uh, yeah, I love what you said, making it mainstream that this is core Christianity we're talking about. Not, of course, that uh, you must believe in a young earth to be saved. None of us would ever uh, say something like that. But these ideas really do have consequences. And uh, we do need to take those seriously as Christians. Well, thank you again, Stephen, for this conversation. This has been a, a wonderful time having both you and Paul. And I hope you guys have a very fruitful ministry over there in the UK with Biblical Creation Trust. And I look forward to talking again with you guys in the future. Well, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Back to you, Marv. Thank you, Zach and Stephen, for that enlightening discussion. Please join us again next month for more interviews and conversations from creation speakers, scientists, and others involved in creation ministry. Be sure to check out our website, MoCreation, MoCreation.org, to learn more about creation, evolution, and to stay informed about events and classes that Missouri Association for Creation is offering in the St. Louis area. If you have any questions or comments, feedback, or anything else you'd like to tell us, please send them to podcast at missouricreation.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to. You can find all our episodes and subscription options at our website, missouricreation.com slash podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm Marv Schaefer. I'd like to leave you with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Catch you next time.